Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. chapter 1, Acts chapter 2 and 22, and 1 Peter chapter 3. Other churches teach that baptism is just an outward sign of your inward change of heart and that you have decided to become a Christian. And some churches teach that you should baptize your babies, and some churches don't, uh, because they say you have to believe to be baptized. And some churches teach that you have to be dunked completely in water. And others teach that you can be baptized just by pouring water over the head. Some churches teach that baptism is only done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And others teach baptism is done in the name of Jesus only. Or in the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier. Let's review the definition of baptism again. Uh, Different forms of Christianity have different standards for baptism based on their interpretation of the word baptism. The Orthodox churches insist that baptism needs to be done by immersion. Some Protestants also insist on immersion, but then they also teach that baptism is just an ordinance done to obey Jesus and doesn't really do anything. The Catholic Church allows baptism to be done by immersion in lakes, rivers, or pools. The Catholic Church also allows baptism to be done by pouring water over the head. The important thing is that water flows over the head three times in the name of the Trinity. In an emergency, anyone can baptize another person. However, it should normally be done by a deacon, priest, or bishop. The word baptize does not mean immerse. The Greek verb bapto means to dip or immerse. The word baptize translates from the Greek word baptizo, not bapto. While bapto may mean 
to dip or immerse, baptizo does not refer to a mode, but a process and an effect. While baptism may include dipping or immersing, baptizo does not in itself mean to immerse. In passages such as Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Acts chapter 8, for example, the Greek preposition translated into may be translated as to or toward or unto. The Greek preposition out of may also be translated as a form of as may also be translated as form or away from. Maybe okay. out of may be translated as from or away from, like Jesus came out from the water or away from the water. Doesn't mean he came up from underneath the water. In Matthew chapter three, the verb the verse doesn't say that Christ was submerged or how deep he went in the water. When Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, he went to the water, dipped his hand into it, and sprinkled the eunuch, identifying him with the Messiah and his cleansing work. Uh, you can cross-reference that with Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, which is the passage that the eunuch was most likely reading. After Peter's first sermon, 3,000 were baptized in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And archaeologists have demonstrated that there was no sufficient water supply for so many to have been immersed. These people must have been baptized by pouring or sprinkling. Acts chapter 2 also reminds us that baptism forgives sins, gives the Holy Spirit, and is for children and adults. And this is confirmed in Acts chapter 22, where it tells us that baptism washes away sin. And 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that baptism now saves us. The Didache is the earliest writing about the church practice. This was written around 70 AD. The Didache tells us that the preferred practice for, to baptize Preferred practice was to baptize in living, as in flowing water, like a lake or a river. The Didache also says that you can baptize in standing cold or warm water. The Didache also says that it, there's not sufficient water for the preferred methods. Water can be poured over the head three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Knowledge of the Greek words related to baptism, the Jewish practices of washing, and the early church prescribed methods of baptism are required to properly understand how to baptize and what it does. Jesus commanded it in Matthew chapter 28 and gave his authority to his church so that we would know how to do it until the end of the church age, which is what we are in right now. This is what the Bible teaches about baptism. The Jews had ceremonial washing rituals to purify themselves before performing certain acts on the behalf of God. So baptism was not a new idea for them. In Ezekiel chapter 36, when the Jews were returning to Jerusalem, Ezekiel sprinkled them clean with water so that they may be worthy of living in God's holy city again. 
He also tells them that he will put a new heart in them, just as our modern baptism is an appeal for a clean heart. Jesus' baptism is described in Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, and John chapter 1. In these Gospels, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven announces, This is my beloved Son. Jesus' baptism in John chapter 1 gives us an example of what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3, when he tells Nicodemus, You must be born of water and the Spirit. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out baptizing. This clearly links being born again to water baptism. In Titus chapter 3, Paul tells us that we are saved by the washing of regeneration, again linking baptism to being born again. At Pentecost, just 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter tells the Jews to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some Protestant faith traditions use this verse to justify baptizing in the name of Jesus only. Since Jesus specified in Matthew chapter 28 to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is the Trinity, that is the correct formula. Peter refers to this baptismal formula as the baptism of Jesus. Verse 39 that follows says, this gift is uh, this gift is for you and your children. This is one of the reasons the early Christians baptized their infants. Verse 41 tells us that 3,000 were added that day to the church, which is the body of Christ. This shows that from the beginning, entrance into the church is through baptism, not Jesus not asking Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior. And in Acts chapter 2, Ananias says to Paul, Why do you wait? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. This shows that baptism really does forgive previous sins. Hi there. Hey, I, I just called in to listen from somebody a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> well, hopefully we can get somebody on here that's smarter than you are. <laughs> I'm just a guy who is doing his best to, to serve Jesus and share the truth of the Catholic faith. Thanks for tuning in, there you John. Go. All right. So in First Peter chapter 3, we read, Just as Noah and his family were saved through water, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt, but an appeal for a clean heart. This shows that we are saved when we are baptized. It is not just an outward symbol of an inward change of heart. It also shows that baptism is not for the removing of dirt on the outside, so it does not have to be done through immersion. The water is a symbol of the inward cleansing of our heart. In early Christian times, some people would put off their baptism until they were near death so that they could enter into heaven without sin. The church has always encouraged people to be baptized early and then live a holy life after that. 
There are many instances of preaching to adults in the New Testament, telling them that they have to believe or have faith before baptism. This makes sense for adults. Children who receive baptism have no personal sin to repent of, but they do inherit the sin tendency of human beings from Adam and Eve who sinned in the Garden of Eden. Baptism is an initial, an initial source of grace to help us live a holy life. In Acts chapter 10, Peter baptizes Cornelius and his whole household. In Acts chapter 16, Paul baptizes Lydia and her whole household. Both of these households would likely contain children because the Jews often lived in two or three generation households. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, Paul links circumcision as the seal of the Old Testament with baptism as the seal of the New Testament. Jewish male babies did not have to wait to accept the faith of their fathers to enter into covenant with God at eight days old. They were brought into covenant based on the faith of their parents. It was natural for the Jews to bring their babies into faith of the family. Baptism had a great advantage over circumcision for the Jews because it allowed both girls and boys to enter into covenant relationship with God. The Catholic Church recognizes three forms of baptism. The ordinary form of baptism is with water flowing over the head and in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through either immersion or pouring. The second form is baptism by desire. If a person comes to faith in Jesus and wishes to follow him, but dies before water baptism can be done, then that person has received the baptism of desire. The thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23 is an example of the baptism of desire. The third form is baptism by blood. This is baptism by martyrdom. If a person comes to faith in Jesus and is killed for being a Christian before water baptism, that person has received baptism by blood. Come to faith in Jesus but are killed for being a believer before they have been water baptized are guaranteed to go to heaven as a martyr of the, for the faith. Baptism permanently marks you as a Christian and gives you an initial grace to grow in holiness. It is up to the parents, godparents, and the individual to continue to grow in holiness. The faith of a Christian is a developing process that begins with a one-time event, but is not finished at that one-time event. Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches about baptism in paragraphs 1213 to 1284. Briefly, it explains that baptism forgives all previous sin and incorporates a person into the body of Christ, his church. The Catholic Church also teaches that we are born again through baptism, where we die to sin and put on the holiness of Christ. The Church teaches that we are forever sealed by a spiritual mark showing that we belong to Christ. Baptism is done only once in a lifetime and allows us to share in the priesthood of Christ. 
Baptism can be done by anyone with the intent to perform the sacrament in an emergency. The person baptizing is required to use the baptismal formula of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit while dunking or pouring water three times. So if you have any questions about you know, what I am teaching about baptism here and you, you're wondering if that's what, really what the Catholic Church teaches, you can check the catechism. And whatever the catechism teaches is what the church teaches. I'm doing my best to present what the catechism and the Catholic Church teaches. You might mis misunderstand what I'm teaching, and hopefully the catechism will clear up any confusion for you. The Catholic Church and most Christian religions teach that water is essential to the administration of the sacrament of baptism. But when it comes to the manner in which water should be used, there is controversy. Should it be done by immersion, pouring, or sprinkling? In the Catholic Church, most believers are baptized by pouring, also known as infusion. At the same time, Catholics know that immersion, also known as dunking, is also a valid form of baptism. At my Catholic Church, uh, for the Easter Vigil, we set up a portable hot tub where people can stand in the hot tub, be immersed in water for baptism. Uh, but we also have a pretty sizable baptismal font where people can uh, be baptized by just having water poured over their head. Some Protestant and evangelical churches reject all forms of baptism other than immersion. They claim that most Catholics are not validly baptized. So the question is, do they have a good argument? According to these Protestants and evangelical churches, the rite of baptism was always done by immersion until the Council of Ravenna in AD 1311, when the Catholic Church proclaimed baptism is to be administered by, by immersion or aspiration. Aspiration means sprinkling. Was the rite of baptism always done by immersion prior to 1311? To find out the answer to that question, we turn to the Didache, which is a Syrian liturgical manual that was written around 70 AD and widely circulated among the churches in the first few centuries of Christianity. That's the great thing about the Didache is that it gives us great insight into the practices of the early church, commonly used throughout all of Christianity. The copy that we have just happens to come uh, from the Syriac, from Syriac church. These are the earliest Christian writings outside the New Testament. Although these writings are not considered inspired, they still bear witness to the sacramental practice of the Christians in the apostolic age. In chapter 7 of the Didache, we read, Concerning baptize, baptism, baptize in this manner. Having sought, said all these things beforehand, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in living water, that is running water, such as a river or a lake, 
If there is no living water, baptize in other water. And if you are not able to use cold water, use warm water. If you have neither, pour water three times upon the head in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These instructions representing an established custom four decades after the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and were authored while some of the apostles were still living and it is around the same time as the book of Revelation was written by John. Turning to another source of Christian writings, Hippolytus of Rome said, if water is scarce, whether as a constant condition or on occasion, then use whatever water is available. And that's from the Apostolic Tradition, chapter 21, and was written in A.D. 215. Pope Cornelius wrote that as Novation was about to die, he received baptism in the bed where he was laying by pouring. And that's written in the letter to Fabius of Antioch, also written around A.D. 251, and is cited by Eusebius in, in his Ecclesiastical History in Chapter 6, Paragraph 4311. Cyprian advised that no one should be disturbed because the sick are poured upon or sprinkled when they receive the Lord's grace. And this is from the letter to a certain Magnus, Chapter 69, Verse 12. And that was written in 255 A.D. So we can see, you know, very early on the, the practice of pouring water over the head was acceptable in the church. It was not invented in 1311. Tertullian described baptism by saying that it is done with so great simplicity, without pomp, without any considerable novelty or of preparation, and finally, without cost, a man is baptized in water, and amid the utterance of some few words is sprinkled and then rises again, not much, or not at all, the cleaner. So again, he's emphasizing that, you know, immersion is so, not so much necessary because the purpose of baptism is not for removing dirt on the outside, it's for removing the dirt of sin on the inside. And uh, Tertullian wrote around 203 AD. Obviously, Tertullian did not consider baptism by immersion the only form of baptism, since he says one is only sprinkled and thus comes up from the water, not much, or not at all, the cleaner. It must be remembered that the in the early days of the Catholic Church, many of the believers met in the catacombs, which were underground tombs for the dead. Or, well, there was underground tombs for the dead in the catacombs, which were kind of like underground um, walkways. There were no rivers of flowing water in those tunnels. Furthermore, in view of the fact that the Christians were persecuted during the first three years, 300 years, it would have been 
unwise for any believers to gather in groups by rivers and lakes in order to be baptized. As it is out of the question to practice immersion today when someone is told on their deathbed, as it is out of the question to practice immersion today when someone is on their deathbed. So it was also the same way in the early days of the Catholic Church. There are many reasons as to why immersion was frequently inconvenient. When members of the Protestant evangelical churches claim that Catholic baptism of pouring is not valid, only the right of immersion is valid, they speak out of ignorance. If they would have thoroughly investigated the matter, they would have learned otherwise. Now we're going to talk a little bit about infant baptism and why we do infant baptism. Adam and Eve were born with God's grace and free will to choose to love God. When they chose to disobey God, they were expelled from the garden. We are all children of Adam and Eve and are now born without God's grace. We inherit their fallen human nature and are, therefore, prone to sin. And we find out about this in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. The first sin thus resulted in our fallen nature, and our natural inclination is to sin. This is referred to as original sin, but it is something missing, not something positively inherited. Baptism gives us an initial source of grace of divine an initial source of divine grace to overcome the sinful tendency, as shown in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And it makes us part of God's covenant family. In Acts chapter 2, 38, Peter replies, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And we can cross-reference that with Acts chapter 2, verse 16. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Many Protestant faith traditions teach that baptism is just a sign, but does not bring about forgiveness of sin. This quote is from Peter's teaching at Pentecost, just 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. The very next verse after verse 38 is verse 39. And Peter says that this gift is for you and your children. This is one of the reasons that the early Christians baptized their infants. According to Acts chapter 10, verse 24, Cornelius had gathered his relatives and all close friends into his house. Acts chapter 10, verse 44 says, The Holy Spirit came upon all those who heard the message. In Acts chapter 10, verses 47 to 48, Peter asks, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? Acts chapter 11, verse 14 declares that he, Peter, will bring you, Cornelius, a message through which you and all your household will be saved. And we can cross-reference that with Acts chapter 16, verses 30 through 34. In Acts chapter 16, 
verse 15, Paul baptizes Lydia and the members of her household. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul states that he baptized the household of Stephanos. We have to remember at this time, Jewish households frequently had three generations under one roof. The eldest male was the head of that household. When he decided what and what he decided was the rule for everyone in that house. So if he became a Christian and was baptized, everyone else was also baptized, as shown in Acts chapter 11, 16, and 16. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, the Apostle Paul links the circumcision of infants as the seal of the Old Testament with baptism as the seal of the New Testament. Jews did not have to accept the faith of their father to covenant with God at eight days old. They were brought into covenant based on the faith of their parents. There is a lot of preaching to adults in the New Testament, telling them, they had to believe or have faith before baptism. This makes sense for adults. Children who receive baptism have no personal sin to repent of, but they do inherit the fallen nature of human beings from Adam and Eve who fell from grace. The Catholic Church teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation. However, the Catholic Church does not tell God whom he can and cannot save. For those who desire to become Catholic or wished to have their infants baptized, the Catholic Church recognizes the baptism of desire if they happen to die before being baptized. So if you're in the RCIA program where you're learning to become a Catholic, if you happen to get run over by a truck and killed before you can be baptized at the Easter Vigil, The Catholic Church recognizes that your desire to become a Catholic is sufficient to save you. And that's the same thing that works for if somebody comes to faith in Jesus and then gets killed shortly after that. Um, The Catholic Church teaches that if you come to believe in Jesus, then you will want to do what Jesus said we have to do. And Jesus is the one that says we need to get baptized. In the past, some Catholic theologians, beginning with uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, have speculated on a place called Limbo of the Infants. This was a place where innocent infants who have died could go if they were not baptized. Limbo has was a good place without the tortures of hell, but it also lacked the beatific vision of heaven. In more recent years, the Catholic Church has taught that babies who die without water baptism have the chance to go to heaven, just like some adults who die without water baptism, but have followed the natural law to the best of their knowledge and ability, as shown in Romans chapter 2. The Catholic Church leaves their eternal judgment to a merciful God wants all men to be saved, as shown in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
in 180 AD, Irenaeus, who was the bishop of Lyon in what we now call France, he wrote about baptism. Now, Irenaeus is important because he learned the faith from Bishop Polycarp, who learned the faith from the Apostle John. And in 180 AD, Irenaeus wrote that we baptize infants and that we are regenerated through baptism. In 210 AD, Origen of Alexandria wrote that the baptism of infants is a tradition handed down to us by the apostles. In 215 AD, Hippolytus of Rome wrote about baptizing infants as a standard practice of the church. Hippolytus wrote about, you know, if a child is old enough to profess a desire for baptism, they should profess it. But he writes that if a child is too young to speak for themselves, the faith of the parents or godparents are sufficient for that baby. In 251 AD, the Synod of Carthage, at the Synod of Carthage, they discussed baptizing infants and decided there was no need to wait until the eighth day. It was the heretical groups that wrote against infant baptism as the early church was developing. And again, this discussion about baptizing on the eighth day is the connection to circumcision, which was done on the eighth day for Jewish male babies. But the church, the local church there decided that, no, we don't have to wait until the eighth day. And they decided that, you know, baptism of babies can be done at any time and should be done as soon as possible. Now, the Greek Orthodox Church gives the sacraments of baptism, Eucharist, and confirmation to their infants. I think it makes more sense to let a child grow in the understanding of the faith before receiving the Eucharist and confirmation. But the Orthodox Church is another church that's as old as the Catholic Church, and they have that same practice of baptizing their infants just like we do. Protestants and other people who question infant baptism have a free will choice to follow traditions developed less than 500 years ago by some guys or to follow the tradition handed down by the apostles. Now we're going to hear a little bit about what some early church fathers wrote about baptism. The letter of Barnabas was written around 74 AD. And Barnabas writes, observe how he des describes both the water and the cross in the same figure. His meaning is, blessed are those who go down into the water with their hopes set on the cross. Here he is saying that after he, we have stepped down into the water, burdened with sin and defilement, we come up out of it bearing fruit with reverence in our hearts and the hope of Jesus in our souls. <clears throat> Another early writing is written is called The Shepherd of Hermas. And he writes, and it's from 80 AD. And he writes, I've heard, sir, that 
I, the shepherd, from some teacher that there is no other repentance except that which took place when we went down into the water and obtained the remission of our former sins. He said to me, you have rightly, you have heard rightly, for so it is. So, Hermas is writing to the shepherd and he has, he says that he heard from some teacher that there is no other repentance except that which took place when he went down into the water and obtained the remission of our former sins, which would have been baptism. <coughs> he didn't just go into the water for fun. And in Justin Martyr wrote about the Catholic faith in his first apology around 155 AD. And here's some excerpts from his first apology. I will also relate the matter in which we dedicated ourselves to God when we had been made new through Christ, lest if we omit this, we seem to be unfair in the explanation we are making. As many as are persuaded and believe that we teach and say is true and undertake to be able to live accordingly, are instructed to pray and to entreat God with fasting for the remission of their sins that are past, we, we praying and fasting with them. They then are brought by us to where there is water, and are regenerated in the same manner in which we ourselves were regenerated. For in the name of God, the Father and the Lord of the universe, and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, they then receive the washing with water. The reason for this we have received from the apostles. This is from Acts, or from chapter 61 of Justin Martyr's first apology. And so he's talking about how the early Christians were, before receiving baptism, they would fast. Um, they wouldn't starve the babies, but uh, adults and those old enough to fast would fast before baptism. And it was done in the Trinity, not just in the name of Jesus. And that it washed away sins and that we are regenerated, born again, through baptism. So this is how the early church understood it in 155 AD. This is not something from 1311. And also, Justin Martyr writes that this food is called among us the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake but the man who believes that the things which we teach are true. Who, and who has been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins and unto regeneration, and who is so living as Christ has enjoined. So that's from Acts chapter, from Justin Martyr's first apology, chapter 66. And Justin Martyr here is talking about how before you can receive the Eucharist, you have to receive baptism, which forgives sins and also is how we are regenerated, born again, and 
who is living as Christ has taught us to live. So it's not like we are, once you're saved, that you're all good to go. We have to continue to live as Jesus calls us to live. St. Theopolis was a bishop of Antioch from 169 to 182 A.D. And he writes, On the fifth day of creation, the living creatures which proceed from the waters were produced, through which also is revealed the manifold wisdom of God in these things. For who could count their multitude and various kinds? Moreover, the things proceeding from the waters were blessed by God, that this also might be a sign of men's being destined to receive repentance and remission of sins through the water and laver of regeneration. As many of as come to the truth and are born again and receiving blessings from God. And this is from his letter to Autolycus, book two. So again, he's talking about how we're regenerated through water, forgives sins, and is something that we do, adults do, after they repent of their sins. Irenaeus, who was the Bishop of Lyon, as I mentioned earlier, writes around 180 AD in his work Against Heresies, and when he writes, and when we come to refute them, that is the heretics, we shall show in its fitting place that this class of men have been instigated by Satan to a denial of that baptism which is regeneration to God, and thus to a renunciation of the whole Christian faith. And that's in Against Heresies, chapter 1, verse 21. And again, giving to the disciples the power of regeneration into God, he said to them, Go out and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, as shown in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. The Lord also promised to send the Comforter, who would... who should join us to God, as written in John's Gospel 16.7. For as a compacted lump of dough cannot be formed of dry wheat without fluid matter, nor can a loaf possess unity, so in like manner neither could we, being many be made one in Christ Jesus without the water from heaven. And as so dry earth does not bring forth unless it receives moisture, in like manner we also, being originally a dry tree, could never have brought forth fruit unto life without the voluntary rain from above. For our bodies have received unity among themselves by means of what labor which leads to incorruption, but our souls by means of the Holy Spirit Wherefore, both are necessary, since both contribute towards the life of God. And that's in Against Heresies, Book 3, Paragraph 17. So, Irenaeus 
is a great reference for being born again through baptism and uh, infant baptism. And he learned the faith from Polycarp, who learned the faith from the Apostle John. So the great thing about the Catholic Church is we have this chain of evidence from an apostle to a bishop that learned from that apostle to another bishop that learned from that uh, bishop that learned from the apostle. And that's how we know have the correct interpretation in the Catholic Church, because we have that chain of evidence in the oral tradition that was handed down from the apostles to the bishops they ordained and the bishops that they ordained also. Tertullian writes in 211 AD, when we are about to enter the water, no, just a little before, in the church and under the hand of the bishop, we solemnly profess that we renounce the devil and his pomps and his angels. Thereupon, we are immersed three times. So here in 211 AD, Tertullian is writing about how baptism is done by immersion three times, which is allowable in the Catholic Church. And he writes about how it's done in the Trinity. And we, he also writes about how we are regenerated through baptism. Hippolytus was a bishop in Rome and wrote around 215 AD, and he wrote a writing called the Apostolic Tradition. And what he did is he gathered all the apostolic traditions that were available in Rome and other areas of Christianity and then wrote them into a combined book. And he determined which things were apostolic tradition based on the same practices being present in all of Christianity around the whole Mediterranean. And that's how we know the apostolic tradition, because all these churches all around the Mediterranean that learned from the apostles originally had the same practices. And even though they weren't written down in what we now call the New Testament, the apostolic tradition was handed on through the teaching passed on from the apostle to the bishop that he ordained and the subsequent bishops from that original bishop. So this is what Hippolytus writes in 215 AD. Where there is no scarcity of water, the stream shall flow through the baptismal font or pour into it from above. But if water is scarce, whether on a constant condition or on occasion, then use whatever water is available. Let them remove their clothing. Baptize first the children, if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let the parents or other relatives speak for them. And that's why we baptize our babies. Because even though a baby can't profess Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, or agree to become a Catholic, um, we recognize that the parents can speak for their babies. And in the case that a infant is an orphan, any responsible adult that uh, is choosing to help raise that child can speak for that child. 
another early church writer is Origen, and this is from his commentary on Romans, written around 248 AD. The church received the apostle, from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism even to infants. The apostles to whom were committed the secrets of divine sacraments knew there is in everyone innate sins, that is, original sin, which must be washed away through water and the spirit, which is given through baptism. So again, Origen is writing in 248 AD about baptizing babies, and this is not a new tradition made up in the 1300s. And St. Augustine is a saint recognized in the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and many Protestants will point to Augustine as a good early church father. And this is what he writes about baptism around 300 AD. Who is so wicked as to want to exclude infants from the kingdom of heaven by prohibiting them from being baptized and born again in Christ? This infant baptism, this practice, infant baptism, the church has always had, always held, and this she received from the faith of our ancestors. This she perseveringly guards unto the end. The Christians of Carthage have an excellent name for the sacraments when they say that baptism is nothing else than salvation and that the sacrament of the body of Christ nothing else than life. When you shall have been baptized, keep to a good life in the commandments of God so that you may persevere that you may preserve your baptism to the very end. Baptism was instituted for all sins in the church. Therefore, there are three ways in which sins are forgiven, in baptisms, in prayer, and in the greater humility of penance. Yet God does not forgive sins except to the baptized. Now we're going to talk a little about some early Christian, or early Protestants that wrote about baptism. In the early 1500s, Martin Luther and John Calvin taught that we should baptize babies and that baptism was a source of grace. It wasn't until the early 1600s that some Anabaptists started the new tradition of accepting the faith before baptism that it was just a symbol of a believer's decision. This is what John Calvin wrote about baptism. Paul adds that the Colossians had been buried with Christ through baptism, as shown in Colossians chapter 2. By this he means that baptism is today for Christians what circumcision was for the ancients. And this is from his Institutes of the Christian Religion. But, in, but since before baptism was instituted by God's people, let me start again. But since before baptism was instituted, God's people had circumcision instead. Let us examine how these two signs differ from each other in, in what 
respects they are alike. From this will appear the anagogic relationship of one to the other. In book, chap in book four, chapter 16, section three uh, of the Institutes of the Catholic Religion, or of Institutes of Christian Religion, from John Calvin, he writes a comparison from St. Augustine in City of God, book 14, chapter 27. And the Protestant theologian Oscar Coleman, Baptism in the New Testament, chapter 4, additionally, the Lutheran theologian Philip Melanchthon makes the same argument in his Loci Communes, written in 1555, chapter 21. So, this is what Philip Melanchthon wrote. <coughs> now we can see without difficulty the similarity and difference of these two signs. The promise, in which we have shown the power of the signs to consist, is the same in both, namely of God's fatherly favor of forgiveness of sins and of eternal life. Then the thing represented is the same, namely regeneration. In both there is one foundation upon which the fulfillment of these things rests. Therefore there is no difference in the inner mystery by which the whole force and character of these sacraments are to be weighed. What dissimilarity remains lies in the outward ceremony which is a very slight factor since the weightiest part depends upon the promise and the thing signified. We therefore conclude that, apart from the difference in the visible ceremony, whatever belongs to circumcision pertains likewise to baptism. Anagogic, anagogic relationship and comparison, we are guided by the rule of the apostle which bids us examine all scriptural, scriptural interpretation according to the proportion of faith, as shown in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 and 6. And the, things is, and the thing is so true that we can almost touch it. For circumcision was for the Jews their first entry into the church, because it was a token to them to which they were assured of adoption as the people and household of God. And they in turn professed to enlist in God's service in like manner. We also consecrated to God, we are also consecrated to God through baptism, to be reckoned as his people, and in turn we swear fealty to him. By this it appears incontrovertible that baptism has taken the place of circumcision to fulfill the same office among us. And that's from Book 4, Chapter 16, Section 4, and is entitled, The Difference is in Externals Only. So we can see that from the beginning, the church has linked baptism to circumcision, and therefore we can give it to 
babies, and baptism makes us a member of the body of Christ, his church. And even the early Protestant reformers recognized that baptism was for babies based on the practice of the early church and its connection to circumcision. The Jews understood that the sign and their connection to God was through circumcision, as God commanded Abraham to do to show his fealty to God. And it was a practice of the Jews ever since the days of Abraham to circumcise their male children at eight days old. And it was determined in an early church council that we don't have to wait to baptize until eight days old. We can do it at any time. But again, as early as 251 AD, you know, baptism was linked to circumcision, as Paul links it in Colossians chapter 2. So the historical record shows that from the very beginning in the church, baptism is linked to circumcision. So it can be for babies and also makes us a member of the body of Christ, the church. And it's an indelible mark. You know, it's a mark that can't be taken off you. So God will always recognize his people through baptism, which leaves a sign on them, showing that they are a member of God's family. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have to leave God's family as we choose, but God calls us to be faithful to him always. Forgive sins as shown in Acts chapter 22. So all previous sin is forgiven at baptism, and we receive an initial source of grace through the Holy Spirit, as shown in Acts chapter 2. So that's about it for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in. If you would like a copy of today's show notes, or have any follow-up questions, you can send me an email at catholicken, that's catholic with a K, at thefourpersons.com. And the number four, use the number four, not F-O-U-R, in thefourpersons.com. Or you can look me up on Facebook. You can answer questions there, too. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith throughout the world. It's our our duty as members of the body of Christ to bring the faith to everybody and always be prepared to offer an explanation for the Catholic faith. Thanks for tuning in. Hope to hear from you next week again. Bye for now.